hamster with a blunt penknife and do it quicker. Welcome back to A Hamster with a Blunt Pen Knife, the Doctor Who commentary podcast. Hello, Jason. Hello, Joe. Um, I've got a question for you. You surprised me, Joe. <laughs> Have you ever played trains before? No, no, that's not my question. That's not my question. It's a very question personal is... question. <laughs> I apologise. I'm assuming the answer is yes. Um, should Should Molly Dawson... Have been a companion of Doctor Who's because I think she's absolutely wonderful. <laughs> uh, she is, yes, and uh, that's a good question. And I, I think you're not actually alone in wondering that because oh, Jack really? Coyer on Twitter at Jack Coyer nineteen ninety six says, of the three main female characters in this story, why did the Doctor take the worst one on as a companion? Exactly. Oh my God, Jack, you're such a smart bloke. Could Ruth Maxtable or Molly the Maid have been more successful as companions? I don't think Ruth Maxtable would have worked as a companion, but I could see Molly working. And it, it's interesting because they spend quite a bit of time, especially in episode three, with Molly and Jamie talking and getting to yeah. spend time together. So that would have been, it wouldn't have been as out there as it seems. And they're sort of like, um, she really flirts with him, doesn't she, in this episode? She does I, a bit. I was yeah. like, my God, there's real chemistry here. Like, yeah. <laughs> and there's that bit in, I don't know if it's three or four. You remember where she's being sort of manhandled and she's like, let go of me, sir, you're hurting me. <laughs> you know, and I, I think I cared more about Molly in that episode than I did in Victoria. And her yeah, I felt really sorry for her in that sequence. So, yeah. She's great. A Victorian miss it, it didn't have to well sorry maybe you think Victoria does work though are you a big fan of Victoria Victoria Waterfield has gone up in my estimation since I did a recent chronological rewatch of the series um, because previously I had thought that she was not served well by a lot of the stories. Um, she tends to be the damsel in distress and screams a lot, etc. And of course, classically compounded by the fact that they made her screaming a key point of her final <laughs> story. Um, but as I was watching it recently, um, I realised how strong in many respects she is i mean i feel quite sorry for her because she is the only companion really apart from tegan in the classic series to leave because she's basically traumatized by what she's been through with the doctor yeah um so you you, you kind of want to keep that on in mind when you're looking at it but the fact that she screams when she finds herself in dangerous situations is kind of understandable. And yet you've also got sequences where, um, I mean, she's quite resourceful in Fury from the Deep, picking the lock with the hat pin or the hairpin and casually telling Jamie after he falls over and hurts himself. I told you not to bother doing that. I mean, she's know. quite resourceful in Tomb of the Cybermen when she picks up that gun and shoots the Cybermat. Yeah, I mean, I've seen a few people criticise her for immediately running to get the man to help her out. But she has no idea how that equipment works. No. What else is she going to do other than call for help? And the only other person available is Captain Hopper and Callum. So that's fine. But the sequence that really made me reevaluate Victoria was in Enemy of the World. Um, and it's that scene where um, Jamie and Victoria have been captured and Donald Bruce comes in with 
salamander as far as they know. And at this point, she has no reason to think that she's going to get out of this alive. She's been, as far as she knows, she's been captured by a ruthless evil dictator who's already killed other people to deal with his, uh, to get his way. And yet she stands up to him and is really, really firm with him. And it's only when she finally goes to actually hit him that the doctor emerges and goes, oh, don't hit me, don't hit me. <laughs> so, yeah, so, I mean, that's, you know, that's, she's pretty damn strong as a character. I absolutely adore her scenes with Griffin the chef as well, you know. Oh, yeah. those spuds, yeah, now. <laughs> absolutely, yeah, they're fantastic. I mean, you know, the one story that she's really served badly by is the Ice Warriors, where oh, she is she nothing more than a... Evils, doesn't she? In that. Yeah, she, she doesn't get a lot to do. Um, and I think there's a fair... Apart from tell Jamie off for perving over her and saying, do you want to, why don't you wear one of those tiny skirts? There's a fair bit of that going on in the web of fear as well. Kind of understandably, it's a pretty sort of scary story. Yeah. But like, you know, like in this story, um, when Molly and Jamie meet at night and they're sort of creeping around the house, Molly's laughing her head off. She's having a great time, (laughs) you know? I'm like, we could have had a season of this. We could have done. We could have done. Well, let's see. There's a lot of stuff happening in episode two. We promise we'll talk about what's on the screen a bit. Um, but let's go and see Molly in action. I love her. Let's do that. Oh, count us in. Okay. Beginning episode two of The Evil of the Daleks in five, four, three, two, one, go. Off we go. Off we go. Now, which are you watching, Joe? Because I'm watching the original episode. Oh, I'm watching the animation. Do you know what? I can't be asked to change the disc. (laughs) <laughs> fair enough <laughs> I think they kind of stick to it mostly although there's a shot you know where uh, we go back in time and it goes into the house I swear that's drone footage they've done that animation on do you remember do you know which bit I mean yeah it could well be it could well be but uh... I don't think the camera yeah. swooped around the lawn and into the double doors like that in the real thing there's a slight oddity I just want to mention for absolutely no reason other than the fact that it is an oddity on this episode this episode is The Evil of the Daleks, episode two by David Whittaker. The order of the captions is unusual because normally you get the story title, the writer, and then the episode number. In this one, it's Evil of the Daleks, episode two by David Whittaker. I believe the continuity person was <coughs> fired after this episode. Possibly, although he might have come back to work on the Androids of Tara because the same thing happens on all four episodes of the Androids of oh, Tara. I love that. You, you know these obscure details about episode titles. Uh, well, yeah, I I'm, I dig into the minutiae a bit for fun. Uh, not not to Toby Haydock levels. Well, I was know. about to say, you two should do a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it would be the most detailed Doctor Who podcast in history. I, cu- I couldn't rival his Too Much Information podcast. It is absolutely oh, superb. Um, oh, this shot here for all the clocks. Uh, yeah like the camera work i just think is it Derek martinez that directs this Uh, yeah Derek martinez directing this and uh yeah it's it's good i liked uh this episode obviously was my first um episode that i saw because i saw that i said my introduction to this story was the missing episode audio actually it was episode two being on daleks the early years 
And of course, it's virtually unrecognizable now because they've cleaned it up so much um, compared you know, to the hissing, sibilant sounds that you got. You know, well, sometimes it adds a bit of atmosphere, you know. I remember the Mind Robber when it was, you know, the very first copy I watched. Those sequences in the uh, the white void with all that hissing going on were absolutely terrifying. They cleaned it up, and now I can see the edge of the set. Um, yeah. <clears throat> what was I going to say? Oh, yeah, the, the but the cruel thing about uh, unearthing Doctor Who the way we have is that you know you see episode two of Evil of the Daleks and episode one of uh, the Web of Fear. Two in isolation, peerless, practically peerless pieces of Doctor Who. And then you realise you can't watch the rest. And yet you can go to your shelf and pick up all five episodes of the Dominators whenever you want. Uh, don't you go knocking the Dominators. I love the Dominators. <laughs> oh, not, written... not to Fraser Gregory levels. <laughs> oh, that is a weird fetish, isn't it? But I'll say, no, he did well. But, he did well when he talked to me. <laughs> but no, I love the Dominators. One of the things he said, actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to segue neatly from talking about the Dominators to either the Daleks oh. via your podcast, because I remember one of the things he said was that Dominators was a very strong story for Jamie and probably one of his best because he's very proactive in it. And I think this is probably his best yeah. story. And Jamie is finally, we get a bit more of Jamie because obviously previously there was Ben and Polly as well. And Jamie was kind of shoehorned in because at the last minute they decided they wanted to keep him. The Phantom Piper. Yeah. Because um, back in those days, I mean, this is, I mean, it's still amazing to me in some respects to think about it, but we're watching episode two of Evil of the Daleks. And at this point, I don't think they'd have even recorded episode six when this went out. Yeah, it's hard. To you know, they were they were recording stories two or three weeks in advance at this point. So Jamie had been seen on screen by the time they came to record episode four of The Dominators, which allowed them to put him back at the end, I think. Um, but... Uh, Do you think but, this yeah. is the first time they realise just what a special character they had because obviously polly and ben have only just left he had a dominant role in the faceless ones but this is where he starts to fly absolutely i mean the faceless ones was was fine uh because ben and polly were victims of the same contract vagaries that saw dodo disappear in the middle of the war machines their contract came to an end at the end of episode two of faceless ones and wasn't renewed uh, unlike Dodo, though, they actually pre-filmed a goodbye scene for them. So they popped up again at the end of episode six just to say goodbye on film. Jamie then, of course, was mostly working on his own as a companion, talking with Sam Briggs and everything, which, you know, would she have made a good companion? I don't know. Possibly. She does inject a little bit of life into that story. Not she much. does put some life into that story. That's very true. Uh, but then he gets captured by the chameleons and then we see him as the director of the chameleons. Yeah. So it's not Jamie for a long time, but here he's really, really come into his own. And I like the little touches in it. Like um, he says, when he goes into the antique shop, he says, doctor, you know, you told me outside. It said genuine Victorian antiques. And it's like, Jamie can't read at this point or at least can't read that well because the doctor told him it said genuine victorian antiques so remembering that he's 
I think somewhere between Evil of the Daleks and Tomb of the Cybermen, they've just decided, okay, he's on board with time travel and he gets stuff. He'll have the odd thing explained to him, but pretty much he's just going to take it all as, yeah, been there, done that. Yeah. Well, Jamie is the proof that in, you know, that the production crew on the Daleks master plan was wrong when they decided to kill off Katarina because you couldn't have a companion from the past who would have to have everything explained to them all the time. Well, Victoria and as yet, well. And yet here we have Jamie from 1745 who knows that he's in weird and wonderful situations and does need things explaining to him occasionally, but not to the point of stopping for every little thing. He, you know, takes things on board and learns and there's no reason why Katarina couldn't have done the same. No. You know, but I no. think it was more... I don't, I don't think it's entirely realistic. I don't think someone from 1745 would just start taking this all for granted. But I don't, I don't know. I don't, he kind of gets away with it. I don't think that that's necessarily true. I think that just because somebody's from the past doesn't make them any less intelligent or capable of handling these new situations than we would be. You know, they they... You know, 1745, 1700s, that, that's the era of Isaac Newton. Well, you I know, mean, look at, people were, you know. Look at Leela as well. It's exactly it's the same yeah. thing. Somebody that's used to a certain lifestyle that's suddenly exposed to all of these things that are completely out of her worldview. But she's yeah. smart enough to sort of figure it out. Figure it out and they deal with it, yeah. But uh, I, I, I do feel quite sorry for, for Mr. Kenneth Perry in here because he's now been left we will be shortly left carrying the can because he's called the police there's a dead body in the shop that he works in his boss is nowhere to be found and these two people that he said were with him are not in evidence either so (laughs) that's uh he's a great example as well you know of how well cast this story is because it's kind of a like you say bit part character but he plays it with the sort of sophisticated camp doesn't he? That's very. Oh, uh, he makes it very memorable. Yeah, absolutely. What does he and say he when have... he's like, "Oh, should we do yours or mine?" And he's got his hand up over. Yeah. He's great. Here's the doctor being detective again by counting out the paces of the realizing the hallway goes further beyond the wall, so there must be another room behind the bookcase or whatever. So there has been clues that. Edward Waterfield is a man out of time, but I don't think anybody would have predicted after they're gassed that they would suddenly wake up. You know, what what year are they in? 18, well, they're in 1966 now and they end up in 1866. So, yeah, exactly 100 years. And to do that, like, three new series, what's another? Oh, no, hang on, wait a minute. They do a lot of time warrior. So I was about to say, when it's between scenes, we're suddenly in the past and then we're in the present. But actually, no, the, sh- the show does that a lot. <clears throat> Yeah. Now, where did they get the pictures of the Doctor and Jamie from? That's another weird or oh, If the idea was they were just going to gas them and take them, can they just gas them at the airport? <laughs> just lure them into <laughs> a hangar? I think so, yeah. And again, or could they just gas them by having the TARDIS arrive in 1866 and just having them kidnapped right away? But you're Now watching, the machine uh... has faded away. And uh, remember that time machine thing? Um, yeah, for the next you know three episodes or four episodes because it will turn up later. But by that time, we've forgotten it existed. <laughs> oh, here on the animation, here's that shot 
where yeah. we go across the lawn, over the trees, through the windows. It's. I remember watching this on the big screen at the BFI. Absolutely bold yeah. over. How is that? How is that house established on the live action one? I can't remember. Uh, we just start inside and it's blurred and it comes into focus on the doors that lead out. So we don't go outside it in episode two at all. Oh. And here's Molly. Here she Here. is. Hello, sir. Here's oh, you did have a party last night, didn't you? <laughs> what a mystery we've got. What the hell's going on? Oh, she's terrific. Uh, and then we introduced to the oh no no not Waterfield no Mr Maxtable. <clears throat> We're suddenly in a twisted version of Downton Abbey all of a sudden. Yeah, it's all very odd. It's yeah, yeah kind of the the story has suddenly veered off in a sharp change of direction because we've gone from contemporary to uh, yeah as you say. Downton Abbey. I say um, you, obviously you've been watching the normal episode uh, for the sort of the last ten minutes and just sort of how brilliantly it's executed i think that's what carries up probably a lot of episode one as well you know that it just looks so good style over substance uh works wonders oh it's next with that. the best facial hair in doctor who <laughs> oh he's an odd character isn't he i mean i do like him a lot i want i want i'll tell you what i do want to say about this is this is absolutely stunning piece of casting maria scoring as theodore I mean. maxtable Marius Goring at this point was, I mean, he was a well-known film and TV star for the last 30 odd years at this point. He was uh, one of the founding members of Equity. Wow. He served as the president of Equity on three separate occasions from the 1950s to the 1980s, or 1960s, 1980s. He wasn't at this point uh, the president of Equity, but he'd been in the movies. He was on a Nazi hit list during the war. Why? because he was employed by the BBC for propaganda broadcasts to Germany to counter the whole um, Lord Hawhaw thing that Germany was doing to us. He, um, he broadcast under an assumed name. I can't remember what it was now, uh, because obviously Marius Goring and Hermann Goering are, you know, sound similar enough that he didn't want the association. But yeah, because of that, he was on a Nazi hit list during the war. So, you know, this is... This is really, really amazing casting for Doctor Who. I mean, everyone talks about JNT and his stunt casting in the 1980s and casting well-known media personalities and everything else. But, you know, this is Doctor Who casting a movie star right. in a tea time drama about Daleks in an ancient house. <laughs> you know, it's... <clears throat> I'll tell you what, he's got that eccentric nature down pat. He's perfect in the role. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. I sometimes wonder about how he's written, his motivations, because he's he's a evil bugger, isn't he? Oh, it turns out that he is, yeah. Here he just seems a bit eccentric. Oh, and here's Victoria. Yep. Uh, yes. <laughs> feeding, feeding the flying pests. I'm never very complimentary about Victoria, you know. Oh, I think she does. I think she's done very well in this story, to, in her introduction. Um um, well, I always thought this is totally unrelated to Victoria. I always thought, even when I first watched it, there was something weird about the Dalek in this scene. Because it looks a bit cheap compared to the other ones. There's something weird about the way the shoulders look, the way the arms are very, very rigid indeed. 
everything else. And they it have wasn't not until... adhered then, because on the animation, it looks absolutely fabulous. Yeah, on the animation, it's an ordinary Dalek, although this one does turn up later on. But it wasn't until a long time later that I noticed this is actually a narrow Dalek, known as the Wilkie Dalek. It's got a very narrow skirt, and the back panel only has one row of um, hemispheres on it instead of the... Oh, a camera just got into shot. Which have you been rapidly... watching those Terranation Army videos? Uh, I have, but I, <laughs> I already found out about this one there. But yeah, and it's but apparently this one was made so that it could get through the doors in the house when they oh, went on location. Okay. Yeah, Because yeah, um, yeah. Daleks and doors are problematic at times I, I remember vividly going to a doctor who convention in a hotel and i saw three people with the dalek standing at a lift door looking puzzled because the skirt section was too wide and they had to dismantle it to get it up to the convention oh floor. no <clears throat> well, i was at a dalek escape room in london just this very weekend right and incidentally i did die i didn't actually get out in an hour <laughs> and this dalek was stuck in the corner of the room right and it was coming alive so it had to start moving and yeah, there wasn't enough space for it to move. It was having terrible trouble. <laughs> oh, this set, the laboratory set, and the piano score as we're introduced to it, gorgeous. It is, although I, you know, as as someone with a scientific background, I would like to um, <laughs> no, draw attention to the extreme unlikelihood of this all being left with bubbling liquids and everything else it, it's the height of irresponsibility to leave anything like that unattended so and what the hell is it for it has to do <laughs> no, no, don't do this all right <laughs> doing you know he tells us all about a story about making a cabinet full of mirrors for time travel what's that what what the bubbling glass so fabulous vats. Created, you know what they're you know? doing it's creating a sort of sheen that goes on the mirror that <laughs> allows them to project light and it goes through time <laughs> no it just looks good that's what style over substance style over substance absolutely Don't think about it all right <laughs> just keep saying that to each other as we watch this story <laughs> Because I'll tell you what, the idea of the Daleks um, skirting around this Victorian house, that is enchanting. And some of those telesnaps that are available of like high angle shots of them going along the corridors and things. Oh, yeah. Jeez, I would love to see that. Yeah, um, I, I would love to get some of this stuff back. Um, the, the, yes, I mean, ignore this explanation of time travel that Maxtable is talking about because it's a load of bobbins. Well, it's um, clearly shit, and I don't think anyone's <laughs> buying it. But it's basically, it's idea. a magic cabinet. Yeah, as an idea, it's it's magic. It's what Stephen Moffat does with Doctor Who, isn't it? It That's is absolutely. Crazy. But imagine if we didn't know. I mean, imagine if this hadn't come along as the classic Doctor Who thing of calling a story the something of the Daleks. And having a Dalek pop up at the end of episode one, because really there's no need for us to have seen that Dalek at the end of episode one. Imagine if this scene, as the Doctor is slowly piecing together what they're telling him, was the first we knew the Daleks were in it. Because um, what an entrance that Dalek is going to make in a minute. Well, and it's almost short as if that's the first time we've seen a Dalek. I know it's the first time yeah. the Doctor's seen a Dalek, but the look on Trouton's face. Yeah. It's it's just putting together the mystery of these these creatures, the the mention of static electricity caught his ear, which, of course, we'd had in Power of the Daleks. They had a static, made a lot about static electricity in there. Um, 
I think I think um, this is such a the whole thing is such a, a romanticized idea, isn't it? Yeah, it, oh, definitely. And it, here we have a, a tight shot as the doctor is trying to figure out what these creatures are, and it's like, oh, they they knew about me. Yeah. Oh gosh. And I'm just I'm just I want to I'm sorry I just want to see this bit because I love it. I I love how Troughton is unafraid to be scared. Doctor, what an entrance! <laughs> I mean, that's brilliant. And yeah, the look on his face. I mean, this is one of the things that I love about the the Trout and Dalek stories is the second Doctor is scared of the Daleks in a way that the first never was. Yeah, you know, Hartnell was very much against the Daleks. He would go, "Well, we have to pit our wit against them and defeat them," and he was angry with them. And but yeah, you his know, face yeah. off at the end of Master Plan with them is absolutely superb. But here. Fountain is terrified. He has a line at the end of when the Dalek goes, where he goes, you know, what have you done with your infernal meddling? And it, but he's desperate. Whereas Hartnell would have said that just angry, you know? Yes, absolutely. And and this is why Troughton is such a good doctor. He's my favorite by quite a way, actually. He's my favorite doctor. I, I still maintain that I think it takes him half that first season to find his feet fully find his feet as the doctor yeah i agree but this is the point where it's like a pair of comfy slippers he knows what he's doing now he does and he's you know and this is also they they toned down the clowning which started the second doctor's era and then later on it kind of came back in a bit Especially if you think about sequences like him running from the Cyberman, shooting him in the invasion and clutching his bum, going, <laughs> No, it's that foam coming yeah, up in the seeds of death. Do you remember? Yeah, and all oh, that business word. with the foam and all that. But here he is absolutely straight. There isn't any clowning at all. And he is absolutely at his, I think he's at his peak here. Um, he's been but what we're saying, this really is Trout and Hines, both at their peak. Yeah, I mean, they do, they, they work brilliantly together. Um, not the least because unusually for at this for this time, you know they they have a blazing row at one point. Oh, I love that scene so much. It's, I think it's the only time they ever fall out, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. Oh, here she goes, Molly. Oh, sorry, oh yeah. No, oh, sorry, sir. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm sorry. You're watching Jamie in the actual episode. Fraser Hines is hot as hell. I'd be flirting with him and making him drinks as well. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> I have heard that Jamie is quite well favoured in, in certain circles. <laughs> oh, and here's Bridget Forsyth. Yeah, she doesn't really have much of a role, does she? No, she doesn't. Um, but I mean, this is one of her earlier acting roles, the Bridget Forsyth. She hadn't had much, but obviously she was later better known for... Um, being Thelma in what happened to the whatever happened to the likely lads yeah. um, and she's still going she's still you know, her IMDB page has entries up to um, 2019 oh really on it she was in uh, still open all hours with David Jason uh -huh. oh, I think she's impressive now I think this is uh, one of the best casts of a classic who oh it's superb it, I, I don't think there's a I don't think there's a miscasting anywhere in this story at all what's the even the smallest part what's the fella that comes in um at the end of this episode 
uh, and uh, drags off Jamie to the barn. What's his name? Oh, Toby. 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 And isn't that the fellow who did the voice of the in the in the Terror Hawks of the Sergeant Major? Uh, yeah, and he played the sergeant in the Eight and a Half Hot Mum. It's Windsor Davis. His voice is. is so distinctive. Yeah. Isn't he it? has such a great voice. <laughs> Yeah, but like I feel like I feel like they've really they've done the rounds to cast this, and they're like, right, we need the perfect actor for the part. Yeah, I don't know if you ever read the Derek Martinez um, interview that I think it was Derek Martinez in Doctor Who magazine where they said we knew this was something special, we knew this script was good, and we were determined to make this as well as we possibly could, and I think it's evident. Oh, they've done an absolutely superb job. I mean. BBC even then was well regarded for its costume dramas and period dramas, and quite rightly so. I mean, look at the look at the sets, look at the way the sets are dressed. There's not, you know, they've wasted no space. Every shelf has something on it. Um, you know, there are paintings, candlesticks, all sorts of furniture, desks, even things that aren't really necessary for the plot. It's all there as a, an embellishment to give you a sense of this is a place that someone lives in. Mm. Um, this is another odd cliffhanger coming up, isn't it? Where the Daleks sort of plot amongst themselves. Oh, it is a very, very odd uh, cliffhanger, yeah. Yeah, yeah, the Doctor will not allow Jamie to run into danger without telling him anything. Well, okay. <laughs> That's not quite what happens later, though, is it? Let's be honest. And of course, we're putting the Doctor in a position where he's away from the action because Trout is going to have a holiday, isn't he, soon? <laughs> yes. He will indeed have a holiday. He just so happens to do these pre-filmed inserts that they could pop into the episode. <laughs> so so we don't suspect that. Um, <clears throat> which is the uh, the best performance that John Bailey gave in Doctor Who then? This or Saison in The Horns of Nymon? Are you overlooking his performance as the uh, uh, the the chief insane astronaut in the Sensorites Part Six? Oh, I've forgotten about. No, I did know that. I completely <laughs> forgotten about that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I think it's Edward Waterfield. Of course, um, it is. That's that's his best cat. I mean, he's brilliant. Um, you, I mean, you feel the way he does it. You feel that he is a man caught up in a situation that he has no control over. But his daughter is in danger. He's doing everything for Victoria. Well, when I said the um, Max Ball's motivations are a bit muddy as this goes along, he just wants to turn metal into gold, which is a very bizarre reason to do all these terrible things. Waterfield's motivation is there up front straight away, and you can buy into that character immediately. Absolutely, yeah. He's a concerned father, and he knows that he's in a terrible situation, and he knows now as well because somebody has died because Kennedy got shot. Yeah. You know, he's getting as you go through the story, you see him sink further and further into the despair of the situation that he cannot extricate himself from. He has to keep going along with it. Is this the first, it's certainly not the last, is it the first instance of us meeting a companion's family member and then dying in the first story? Obviously, it happens with Auntie Vanessa, it happens in, with Varsh. Happens with um, I think it is, yes. Um, and in fact, it's pr I think it's the first time we meet a companion's family at all. Because obviously 
well, apart from Susan, whose grandfather is the doctor, but yeah, we don't know any more of Ian and Barbara's family. Stephen, Vicky was an orphan. Uh, Stephen was marooned on Mechanus on his own. Katerina, Sarah, well, Sarah, oh, oh Brett Vion and Sarah Kingdom. <laughs> oh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> well done. Bizarrely, just turns out, oh, by the way, he's my brother. Oh, okay, fine. <laughs> anyway, let's go down some hijinks now. <laughs> yeah, let's go and have some hijinks with a meddling monk. But, uh, but yeah, I think this is probably the first time we properly get an idea of the uh, of a companion's family member. And it's quite sad, really, when you consider that they they don't have any they barely have any on-screen time together no and apart like, from that bit in the cell in episode seven i think thinking about it objectively you know her dad dies in her first story and she, you're right she's traumatized so much she has to leave in her last one. i mean it's a hell of a run isn't it it is and you know you do you do feel for her because she does go through you know it's one of those rare occasions most of the time in stories like this, you you can't dwell on the long term impact that these things are going to have on people because you know, lots of people get killed, companions get tied up, gassed, hypnotized, yes, beaten up. If that even happened to me once, happen. Jason, I wouldn't be going in that TARDIS again. Yeah, you know, and so this is going to have an effect. And I think, I mean, for my money. It's something I think the new series dwells on too much, especially with the Doctor. They spend a lot of time with the Doctor dealing with his, his well, their, sorry, their angst about what they've done, what they've been through, what they've convinced other people to do in the name of right and things like that. And I think there is a space for that, but I think you can overdo it. Yeah, well, that's what made uh, Series 11 so refreshing when Jodie came along. I'm like, yes, we're done with all the man pain. We're just going to have some fun again. Yeah, let's do that. And uh, yeah, so I think that, I mean, I mean, also, I mean, that was one of the things that appealed to me about Doctor Who when I first came to it, is that it didn't spend, it, it, you know, it tugged at the heartstrings occasionally. It made you laugh, it made you cry, but it didn't go out of its way to be overtly emotional about lots of things and that appealed to me when i was a moody angsty teenager <laughs> i get that but i think the fact that it's infrequent so when you get an ending like victoria's or joe grant's or sarah jane's when those moments hit they really hit because that's not the norm for the show you know they really stand out i i completely agree with you absolutely and you know i i i love the Christmas episodes. I love a regeneration story and so on. But every single one has been in the modern era. Well, apart from Parting of the Ways, because that wasn't supposed to be a regeneration story. They only did that because Christopher Eccleston quit. But End of Time, Time of the Doctor, Twice Upon a Time, and now Power of the Doctor as well. Every single one really comes at you with the music and the the tears and the crying and the oh isn't it terrible and oh god oh oh the emotion and everything else and i think just... we're trusted to be moved you know unless it's all dialed up to 11 you know the regeneration that moves me the most is planet of the spiders and it's completely silent and he just dies on the floor i think sometimes that planet of the spiders has 
a lot to answer for <laughs> in that it gave the doctor some moving last words. And so <laughs> quite a few people since have decided that that's what we have to do now. We have to give the doctor moving last words. And that reached its absolute Nadir. or nadir, depending on your point of view, in Twice Upon a Time, where the doctor just kept on collapsing and then standing up going, and another thing. Oh, oh, and don't forget. Uh, Trout got it right, you know. Oh, and so on. Trout was just going, no, no, no. <laughs> yeah. I mean, twice upon a time, you could cut out everything from, I suppose, one more life won't kill anyone except me. Doctor, I let you go. And that would be fine. You don't need all that staggering around the TARDIS. <laughs> Shouting about, oh, never tell anyone your name. Don't eat pears. Children know your name. Oh. That's why I like Jodie's again, because she just went, well, whoever you're going to be, tag, you're it. <laughs> That's it. Yes. Um, it was so refreshing. Yeah, it was. Oh, sorry, I can't be too pro, Jody. Jesus, half the audience is switching off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you were pro about the way she left, so that's okay. <laughs> yeah, as well. Well, come on in. How did you find that? Uh, how did you find watching that? You can actually watch that episode properly. I really like it. Um, when I first, when I first saw it, I thought there weren't enough Daleks in it. But then I was thirteen, so <laughs> you know, it's like, more Daleks, more Daleks. What's all this? I don't think any historical stuff enough Daleks in them, you know. You know, but uh, no, watching it back, I mean that scene in the laboratory where the Doctor pieces together what they're telling him, and that Dalek emerges from the thing is just—it's peak Doctor Who that scene. Yeah. And if that had been the first we'd known the Daleks were in this story, that would have been so perfect. You know, the Doctor arrive. The Doctor and Jamie arrive in eighteen sixty-six. They're exploring the house. They're gassed. They wake up. The TARDIS has been nicked. And then they have that scene with Max Dibble and Waterfield talking about creatures and time travel. And, event, and then suddenly the Dalek bursts out and goes, Doctor! I mean, that would have been perfect. You know what you're doing? You're re you're editing this into a new series episode. You're sort of condensing it down. Mind you, probably <laughs> if you took out all the fluff, we could probably make this a two-parter, you know? Possibly. I'm not sure there's as much fluff in it as as uh, some people contend, but uh, we, we have had some comments on Twitter and some oh, questions. Let's do it. Let's do it. Uh, Fitzoliver J says, did Scaroth copy his scheme off Waterfield, but improved on it by aging his antiques? <laughs> Which was quite <laughs> Well, there are similarities. Uh, bum, 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 bum. Darren and Lit Roundels. Episode two is my most watched, my most rewatched of any surviving episode from Missing Story. It's just so perfect. We've got two time zones. Every aspect of the production just shines. The animation just can't do it justice. I didn't finish it as it was so lacking in atmosphere. What did you think about the animation? Did you find it lacking in atmosphere? Um, no. But I know what he's saying. I don't think the animation will ever be a suitable substitute for the real thing. Now, the thing about um, Darren Nick Roundles is uh, he is he pays particular focus to direction, and he's there on Twitter, and he'll put up gifts and stills and uh, scenes examining the direction. He has a particular antipathy to Richard Martin <laughs> and Jones. <laughs> We've I can't imagine reason. why. 
So I can see why he would love this, because this is probably one of the more stylish directed Doctor Who's. It is very nicely directed. Just just from that one episode, you can see the, the quality of the direction. And the telesnaps give you a hint of how it was directed as well. And that's, I love the telesnaps. It's like somebody, somebody um, suggested in a recent commentary that actually classic Doctor Who taken as a whole <clears throat> is all kind of cheap television. And, you you know, can you really tell one director from another? Oh, what a load of cobblers. Of course you can tell one director you from another. You absolutely can tell. It's, and I, you know what, I think it's more highlighted in the 60s. Yeah, I think that is that is a fair um thing when you compare the work of douglas camfield Derek martinez to richard martin richard martin is one that amazes me in some respects because when he's on location and he's got huge landscapes to play with his direction is absolutely stunning i mean those shots in the dalek invasion of earth around trafalgar square and all that looking up the steps at the daleks the dalek in the river oh absolutely gorgeous and when he's in a studio, he seems to forget that he's in a studio and there are certain angles that you just don't do, especially when you're using photo blow-ups of Daleks. He shoots above the action in the most strangest way. I don't know what I'm looking at. Well, go and watch go and watch the Chase episode two, yeah? And then go and watch the Daleks Master Plan episode two and tell me you can't tell the difference between two directors. Well, exactly. I mean, look at the web planet <clears throat> where he he gets the actors right up against the backdrop. So they're casting shadows and then shoots from a high angle that makes it really obvious. A painted backdrop and a flat, a photo blow up Dalek are supposed to be shot from certain angles so that you can't tell what they are. And he shoots them from all kinds of angles that give away what they are. And, you know, um, I, I hear this argument. Oh, you know, he says it on one of the documentaries. We didn't have the time. We didn't have the money. no, because Douglas Canfield didn't have the time or the money either, but he had the skill. Well, yeah, I mean, remember what we were saying? I remember the uh, the memos that I was reading out of the, the first Doctor Handbook when we were doing it, you know, the the last minute rush, some of the sets not being ready because the scripts were being rewritten. And you and, just can't see it. And that none of that was translated to the screen. Whereas, you know, the Dalek invasion of Earth has a gorgeous high angle shot of Daleks at the saucer. But in the background are these bloody photo blow up Daleks with a searchlight swinging around. <laughs> really obvious what they are. It's like, Terrible. You, you know, I am not a professional director, but even I know you don't shoot a flat that way if you want it to be portraying an actual thing. So I um, and I do think Martinez is I think all of the story he directs are very good. Um, they've clearly saved money for this story. There is uh, like a vast array of sets. There's location work. There's a huge cast. Mm. You know, they there's some money's gone into this. Some money has definitely gone into this, and it's all on screen as well. That's uh, yeah, that's what's great about this. So Walter Dunlop says Troughton Daleks are the best Daleks. Scheming, devious, and the Second Doctor looks actively terrified of them, which we just said earlier on about Patrick Troughton allowing himself to look scared um only mccoy and eccleston seem to manage that other than him and i think that's fair actually yeah i'd, I'd agree with that as well uh, um, i think that's very true i think his assertion that trout's daleks are the best daleks is spot on i think david whitaker writes the daleks in a far more interesting way than terry nation does and dennis spooner if i'm honest um and I think a lot of the more interesting things that have been done with the Daleks in later years 
is people looking back to these stories and and cherry picking some of the best ideas from power and evil of the daleks oh absolutely um i mean everything from subtle things to the most blatant like uh victory of the daleks with it going i am your soldier that's just lifted straight out of power mm. Walter Dunlop goes on to say, I've always thought that if ever you wanted the big Doctor Who film script, here it is, evil is the one. And hard to disagree. I mean, it is why you know, it's got it's got a huge scale, which is unusual in this era. Um, yeah. And, you know, you'd have a massive set piece at the end. If you got a nice bit of money, you know, you could do the yeah. construction of the Dalek City um, sort of cinematic style. And, you know, like you said, don't think about it. Just enjoy enjoy the style over substance. Well, that's most movies these days. Enjoy the ride. I mean, sometimes, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of stuff in this that doesn't make any sense, but it's done really well. And there's a lot of Doctor Who that's like that. I mean, the classic example... Especially these days. Yeah. Well, the classic example in, in the series really is Deadly Assassin Part 3, which doesn't advance the plot one bit. But is, you know, I mean, the, the two other supporting characters or the other supporting characters that we see, apart from the Doctor and his unseen assailant in in the Matrix, everyone we see in the actual time is either lying down or sitting down. Yeah. Spandrel doesn't even get up to Stazer, that guy who comes to kill the Doctor. You know? So <laughs> <laughs> they literally just lie down for a bit and carry, let the plot carry on without them. So, but it's <laughs> great. But it is great. It's really <clears throat> nicely done. Um, so yeah, this one is is another style of them. And I've got one more from Fraser Gregory. Go on. He's gonna stir the nest. Let's go. Snog, marry, push into a cupboard full of mirrors and static electricity, Maxtable, Waterfield, and Doctor Who. Snog Marion, what? <laughs> push into a snog marry push into a cupboard full of mirrors and static electricity oh okay well i'll snog oh do you know i'll snog doctor who do you know why patrick trout had multiple families he must be doing something right <laughs> um uh, i would marry edward warsfield because he seems like a very charming man and i'll push maxtable into those hall of mirrors because uh, honestly I, I think if i turn my back on him i'll be in trouble i think i would probably agree with that yeah He's always doing those snog Mario voice, you know. He's trying to lower this podcast to the lowest possible denominator. I know. This from the guy who had the stop it gift put up. Right. <laughs> Honestly. Honestly. I have th I have threatened to bring Fraser Gregory and his stop itometer into these podcasts before. And now <laughs> I, I've just I've lost all faith in it, Fraser. I've lost all faith in it. it just doesn't seem genuine anymore. <laughs> I, I think the stop itometer is broken, you know. We're just given up. Well, look, that was episode two. We're back into animation for you for episode three. Indeed we are. Shall we do it? Why not? <laughs>